please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Oh, it's sad. Is this the last Wednesday we're going to see the Puros for a while? They're moving to Idaho, so make sure you keep them in prayer. We love you guys. Uh, praise the Lord. First uh, Timothy chapter 2. And this book is so amazing. In First Timothy 2, we, there's no chapter breaks in the original, so you would have just kept on reading right from uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander being handed over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme to Paul's encouragement to pray right after he makes that statement, which I think is important that we understand the context. And my hope and prayer is that we would become uh, more, more prayer warriors than we've ever been. And the Lord wants us to be a praying church. He wants to be a praying people. He wants you uh, to be, if, if, you're, if you're a dad and you have a wife and children, you should be a praying dad. I mean, you should be setting the example that you're a family that prays together. You pray not only when you're eating and so forth, but when you're driving, when you're, when you're living life, when you're facing decisions, when uh, there's people sick, when things are good, that you're a, a man of thanksgiving. And same with the women of the Lord here. Whether you're a man that's married or not, whoever you are is a man of God. Paul writes this as a single man, and he was a prayer warrior. And, I mean, prayer is basically your heart submitting to the will of the Father and crying out to him, letting him know that he's first in your life and letting him know that you want his will to be done in your life and in the world that we live in. And it's also a recognition that, that our very breath, everything we are, depends on him. And if we're not people that pray, if we're not crying out to him, if we're not seeking his face, we have nothing. And I think it's beautiful that the... the uh, that God by his word, I, I see the Lord, I try to see him in everything because it's just amazing when you look at all the metaphors and all the pictures of the Lord throughout the scripture and how many they relate things relate to just your everyday life and how many pictures should be constant reminders of the Lord. And one of those things is the very air we breathe. You know, the word for pneuma, the word pneuma in the Greek and the word rock in the Hebrew are words that mean wind, that speak of the wind and the breeze, the air. And they're words that are the same words uh, in Hebrew and Greek for the word spirit in reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, the air and the wind is not the Holy Spirit. It's the creation, amen? But it's a picture of the Lord, amen? And Jesus talked about how the Holy Spirit moves and, and told Nicodemus that, you know, he's like the wind. He blows, but you don't know where he's coming from, where he's going. He's mysterious how the Holy Spirit works. But nevertheless, the, the air, the wind is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And we breathe physically. Our physical dependence uh, on air is unchallenged. You know, you can challenge that premise that you need air to, to live and you'll soon die if you hold your breath. Uh, but the same is true with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I believe one of the ways we uh, receive, uh, I should say, appropriate more power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is through surrendering, is through denying ourselves, is through prayer. So I look at prayer as a way of almost like inhaling. Now, I totally disagree with prayer exercises that have to do with breathing, you know, meditations where, that are influenced by the East where you breathe certain ways like in yoga. I'm not talking about that at all. That's pagan, okay? That'll open you up to a bunch of lies. But I'm talking about the reality that the wind and the air is a picture of God's spirit, you know? And when we pray uh, and we surrender the Lord, we are able to be more filled with the Holy Spirit. 
It just says our physical bodies depend on air for life. We depend on the power of the Holy Spirit for spiritual life. The Bible says if you have not the Holy Spirit, you are none of his. Amen. And the Bible says that those that belong to God have crucified the flesh with his affections and desires and, and that we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, crucify them, put them to death, you shall live. So Holy Spirit, uh, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, it says right after that in Romans 8, 14, these are the children of God. So it's critical that we have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, Romans says you don't belong to him. If you're confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're truly from the heart being able to say, Jesus is my Lord, right? Well, you can't say that but by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. So we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to just be born again. He's the one when we receive Christ as the Lord and Savior, amen? And we turn to the gospel and we embrace Jesus, our Lord and Savior, through faith. And we're cleansed from our sins. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. God's Spirit is God. When God comes in your life, you're born again by His Spirit. You must be born of water and of Spirit, amen? So you have the life of God in you, but that begins with a prayer. Your salvation through what Christ did on the cross. He paid for you, but you have to make the choice and your salvation begins with a prayer. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved, amen? Comes through faith in Christ and crying out to the Lord for, for forgiveness through faith in him. But as we pray and we seek him, we are empowered with the Holy Spirit. Yet what happens oftentimes in our Christian lives and I'm very guilty of this through the years, is what we often do, and I know I, have, I do, is my prayer life sometimes is too limited. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for my family. I pray for my own spiritual walk. Uh, those things. But uh, I shamefully say through the years, I've fallen short of praying for the list that Paul gives here, the way I ought to be praying for this list. Because he talks about praying for kings, for those who are in authority. How many have a hard time praying for Joe Biden, even though you realize he needs your prayers? Amen? How many had a really hard time pray, praying for when she was running for president? Hillary Clinton. You know, let's be honest, you know? I'm just being honest. I sometimes have a hard time praying for people that I feel are sometimes bent on being antichrist or loving evil or bringing harm to my spiritual family, the church, uh, who have very, very so-called progressive, I call them degressive ideas about leading the world against, away from, uh, into the slaughter of innocent babies, against biblical traditional marriage and the destruction of the family unit. That breaks my heart. But I shouldn't be praying for them less because I see people running headlong into rebellion against God and leading people that way. I should be praying for them more. And I get convicted when I read this passage, and this passage has probably helped me that we're going to look at today, has probably helped my prayer life more than any other passage when it comes to praying for the leaders that I have a hard time praying for. And I thank God for the verses that we're looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We've already looked at chapter 1. Now we're looking at verses one through three. And I pray the Lord challenges you because I really believe that it's not just good for your own walk, amen? Very important for your own walk, but that your prayers will affect 
the salvation of others uh, and, the salva- and the opportunity for people to share the gospel uh, in a myriad of ways. So 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now, that's interesting. First of all, every one of those words in the Greek, and I looked at each Greek word, is in the plural, you know? Uh, So we're talking about that entreaties, right? Prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. If you have the NIV, it translates a couple of those words in the singular, but it still could be understood collectively. But in the Greek, he's talking about a variety of prayers here. And that's why Paul loads up with four different types of prayers that he mentions here. And it's interesting, he says, first of all, that's, that's interesting because we just hit chapter two. And now, first of all, it's like, where'd that come from? He's talking about applying the theology that he's just written about. And the theology, the theological points that he's about to make that should motivate us to put feet on our theology, to apply our hearts to prayer, to cry out to God and make sure we're praying. First of all, in light of what? Because it says, first of all, what's the next word in the English? First of all, then. Some of you might have a translation that says, begins the verse with therefore. Anybody have therefore? Okay, uh, Mark, you have therefore. Uh, the Greek word doesn't literally mean therefore, but because of the context and the word that is translated therefore, uh, it fits very well because Greek scholars acknowledge that, you know, therefore could be warranted because, or the word then, right, in light of what's come before. What's come before? And why would he tell us to make entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving that they would be made on behalf of all men? What's some reasons that you would think Paul would state that based on chapter one? That's right. He just called out specific people. You're right, Jim. Hymenaeus and Alexander, false teachers, were the very last people he mentioned before this verse. We had it over to Satan that they might what? Learn not to blaspheme. And I love that because that shows me he's concerned that we even pray for them. Amen? And remember, we looked at church discipline as remedial. Amen? God wants to win people back to himself when they fall away. And these men have shipwrecked their faith, and he warns Timothy not to do that. So we ought not just be praying for them, if you were getting this message in the first century, but also praying for Timothy, right? Because Paul wants him to uh, accept the empowerment and the gifts that God had given him so he could preach the gospel, and so that he could be steadfast and not shipwreck his faith. So if I'm reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm thinking, Hymenaeus and Alexander, man, I need to pray for these guys. Timothy, I want to pray that he fights the good fight doesn't shipwreck his faith. And I want to learn lessons from there. And then there's these teachers that Paul said he's left Timothy in Ephesus so he'd teach certain people not to teach false doctrines, right? So I pray, Lord, help them not to preach false doctrines. Check the church at Eph- or strengthen the church at Ephesus if I'm a recipient of this letter at Ephesus. However, I can learn much from this because that means I need to pray for false teachers. And I have prayed for false teachers We pray for a lot of that which we expose in Good Fight Ministries. Pray for rock stars and Hollywood, you know, 
perverts and all these people that don't live for Jesus and are very antichrist in many ways, guess what? We don't just say, hey, watch out for this, you know? And we need to say, watch out. Like right now, there's a new movie out called Lightyear, right? Made after Buzz Lightyear. Guess what? It's the toy from this toy store. Remember Buzz Lightyear from the toy story? There's been like, what, was there four toy story movies? And Tim Allen, they canned him. They brought in Chris Evans, Mr. Uh, Socialist or Communist or whatever he is now, not Captain America, really. Uh, and he's all saying, well, the people that disagree with the perpetuation of, basically he's talking about uh, the promotion of, of just queerness in the movie. He said, they're dinosaurs, you know. They're idiots. Because a number of countries, I think it was over a dozen, it's over a dozen countries would not even accept the movie because his sidekick is a gal by the name of Alicia and she's going to outer space with him and she gets married in the movie and she shares a kiss with another, her female lesbian partner. And keep in mind, it's kind of interesting. It's not, you think, oh, it's altruistic because Disney's not really about money so much no, anymore because they're losing a ton of money, but that's because they have an agenda and it's to shove down our throats, their perverse views into our kids' hearts. When DeSantis, governor of Florida, signed a bill that would reject and preclude teaching kindergartners transgenderism. And by the way, you know there's a case in California court right now where a, a parent found out that her little girl was being, meeting with leaders in the school and, and going to a club and learning to become transgender. They told her to pick a new name and everything else and the mom had no idea what was even going on. Can you imagine that? And then your kid comes home and your kid wants to have, you know, puberty blockers and a sex change or whatever she's going through. I don't know what she's going through. I, I saw her. She was in tears, enraged that her kid, uh, and they, instead of having it after school, they made it during lunchtime so, and told them to keep it quiet from your parents. This, this little class we're having, extracurricular thing about transgenderism. And there's a lot of people that feel they know way better than you. And they, oftentimes they don't have children. Oftentimes they, don't, they can't have children because they're having a relationship with another person of the same sex, but they want to make, be parent to your child. And keep in mind, it's, it's a reality. Homosexuals can't reproduce, so they have to recruit. So they hit the school systems. That doesn't mean every homosexual or every person that is into that, there's many that would never do anything like this, but there are many who do want to recruit. And, and it's in politics, it's in... And Disney, I mean, we played a little clip, I don't know how many weeks back, where... A, a executive producer, a, a TV animator for Disney, said she's putting queerness all kinds of places and nobody's trying to stop her in Disney. And other, you know, high-profile high people in Disney in that same Zoom meeting, and they were reacting to DeSantis' bill from kindergartners to third graders. Is that, a, is that a strange lot to say, hey, you know what, if they're in kindergarten or third grade, we don't want you talking about transgenderism and homosexuality with our, our little kids. Is that a strange law? It's strange that you, it's in our day and age that you'd have to make that law. I mean, I grew up in a time where it was, you know, men dressed like women and stuff. It was, everybody viewed that as just wrong. And to, and to shove that in the kids' faces would have been just considered so appalling. And now, one political leader says she wants, you know, they're not saying, hey, let's call for, you know, because of these school shootings, let's call. You know, many aren't saying let's call for, you know, uh, uh, you know, security guards at each school. You know what this lady's calling for? 
that each school has a, tran a transvestite that goes, transsexual that goes and dances in front of the kids, every school. It's like mind-boggling. And when I say, wow, it's hard to pray for people that are targeting our kids like that, I'm like, Joe, those are the ones, they need our prayers, amen? Now I'm praying for the parents. I'm praying for the kids for protection. But I'm also praying for, for the lost because I was once lost. It's so hard not to, it's so hard to forget that these people need Jesus and he died for them too. And we can get a hardened heart because Jesus said, last days lawlessness would increase, right? And it is. And the love of many would what? Grow cold. But if you're praying for someone, as John Christostom, one of the early church fathers said, it's hard to hate people that you're praying for. So one way to keep your heart soft toward the lost is to pray for them. Amen? I'm trying to encourage you. I've been praying that God would convict you as he's convicted me. And maybe you're further along than I am in this. Maybe you're like, every day you're praying for the leaders. You're saying, Lord, praise the Lord for Hillary Clinton. Give her strength to be a righteous woman. I can't get there as easily, but I get there. I drag my flesh and kill it and say, nope, I'm praying for these people, you know? And uh, I don't know why I keep mentioning Hillary. I guess maybe because she's talking about running again, possibly. But then she said, no, I'm not going to run. And, and maybe she was probably the hardest, one of the hardest. Podesta, you remember that whole thing, that WikiLeaks thing and all that stuff going with the spirit cooking and all that? Some of these people are really, really creepy, you know? But we need to pray for them. Because before Christ, we were pretty creepy. But Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. He died for his enemies. And Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you and say all manner of evil against you and despitefully use you there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Amen? And in Luke chapter 6, he said, your father causes, and he said this in Matthew 5 as well, causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But in Matthew, Luke 6, I love the way Jesus said it. He said, he said you know, uh, if you want to be like your father, the most high God, love your enemies because he loves his enemies. And I love this because we have to be very, very careful because when you become a Christian, you're so happy to be saved. You recognize you want your friends to be saved, lots of people to be saved. But after you're a Christian for a while, you can get in this mentality that you belong to some club and it's us against them and forget that the world's a mission field for whom Christ died, amen? And we have to always keep that before us. We have to keep hearts of love uh, before us and, and one way to keep our hearts and our love light lit is to stay in prayer. It says in the book of Jude to snatch people out of the fire in Jude verses 20 through 23. It talks about snatching them out of the fire and building yourself up in your most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. How do you pray in the Holy Spirit? You know one of my favorite ways to pray is opening the word of God and reading the scripture and when I come to a command praying God do this in my life. God, do this in my life. Oh, Lord, please do that in my life. Because now I'm reading the scripture, but I'm also praying his will do in my life. Those are some of the most delightful, wonderful times I have in my walk with Jesus is praying the scripture. Because guess what? I know the Holy Spirit inspired the scripture, amen? It's God breathed, and I'm praying according to his will. And it's so beautiful to know that you're praying the Lord's will. So we could pray this, you know, first of all then, I urge entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. So I want to obey that command, but I also want to say, Lord, give me a heart to obey you and pray for all men. And the universalness of this passage, now, universalism, the idea that everybody we saved is alive from the pit of hell. Jesus said, you know, broad is the way it leads to destruction, and many go that way. But 
narrow is the gate, straight is the way, it leads to life, and few are those who find it, amen? So we, biblically, we know that most people are going to continue to reject the Lord. However, there's a universal aspect to God's love and his universal desire that all would be saved, as we see in this passage, which is why he tells us, and we'll get into that a little bit, why he wants us to pray for everyone, because of God's heart, amen? So it's very, very important that we understand this and the importance of, of praying for everyone, you know? And I love that he says in verse 1, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, everyone. You think the Ukrainians can use our prayers right now? But how many of you prayed, have prayed for the Ukrainians? Only two of you? A lot of you say, wait, I'm just not raising my hand. It's just kind of rhetorical, right? But if I said, how many of you have been praying for the Russians? Praise the Lord, Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. A few of you. And I'm sure if quite a few more that didn't raise your hands. Because it's, it's like, wait, the Russians, well, the, a lot of these Russian kids are just going to war. They don't even know what, they've been fed a lot of lies, right? And the mothers and their, their dads' hearts are just being torn out as they see their children fight for a man that they can't even stand up against, Putin, right? So I've, I've been praying for the Ukrainians, and I have to say, I've been praying for Ukrainians, yes, more than the Russians, but I'm also praying for those in Russia that they would know Jesus. A lot of those guys are going to their deaths. And, but we should be praying for everyone. In fact, Lisa and I uh, had lunch today with a Ukrainian, uh, a Ukrainian Jew who uh, was born in Crimea, Crimea, and then she uh, migrated eventually to Israel. And uh, we had, her and her husband had, uh, were visiting us from uh, Sonoma, I think, Northern California. And they came out in the motorhome, and he's been listening to our messages for, for years, he said, and really been blessed. And it was a blessing getting to know them. But her, her uh, I think it was 83-year-old, her 83-year-old uh, grandpa just barely got out of Ukraine, uh, out of Crimea, just barely got out. And as they were just, you know, just recently, and he had a lot of help. And it's important that we're praying for those people, amen, because... The Bible says the effectual prayer in James 5 of a righteous person avails much. It's very effective. It's very powerful. Things take place because of prayer. Now, I think it's interesting. He's, it's then, and by the way, he says, I urge, and that word is the same word he used in the Greek in chapter 1, verse 3, where he told Timothy in the first few verses, you know, he urged him, right, to basically confront those who are teaching false doctrine. And then he says he commands as well over there in the first few verses. So because he's an apostle, he commands. Because he's a father-like figure, he urges. And here he urges, this is the urging like a father would urge his children that prayers be made for everybody. You need to be a person of prayer. It's not that hard to pray. I challenged the men, and one of the men came to me afterwards. He goes, I really like how you said that because you'll say, because I talked about lifting your hands in prayer which is actually mentioned a few verses where I could get into that verse today. It's a few verses down the line where it kind of encapsulates what Paul starts here. And, and I mentioned that a lot of, some guys are like, oh, I've got to lift my hands in prayer. It's like, what in the world? Same guys will go to the gym, man, and they'll bench press 350 pounds or something. They're like, oh, oh, man, I worked out for two hours today. You want to pray? Oh, no, it hurts to lift my hands. Huh? What? 
And by the way, the Bible says spiritual exercise is far more important than what? Physical exercise. Physical exercise is good for a little, it says. A little in this life. It's good for a little. But it says spiritual exercise is good for much. Not only this life, and it says this in Timothy, not only this life, but the life to come. Amen? So we ought to be exercising ourselves, disciplining ourselves unto godliness, it says. And God, the Lord God wants us to be people of prayer, crying out to him. And it should be a daily part of our lives, and it should be a momentary part of our lives. We should be seeking to pray without ceasing. And that, to me, is just, is you just continue to have a life of prayer. I want to encourage you in the morning, get up and pray. Even if you're laying in bed, lift up your hands. I'm not saying you have to lift up your hands, but that helps you. How, how hard is it to just lift your hands and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And prayer that pray, pray the prayer that the Lord gave us to pray. And then whatever else he puts on your heart that morning. And then as you're driving, just praying, Lord, please strengthen me and help me be a good witness as I go to work. Help me to shine the light of Christ. Lord, give me divine appointments. Put people in my path that I could witness to. Open my mouth, you know. And you, if you pray, he'll give you divine appointments. You know, a, uh, today I was able to witness very slightly, but a little bit to a, a few gals. And somebody, uh, Sister Jennifer, got me a coffee mug, a big, beautiful one that says, Jesus saves in, in handwriting, comma, bro. And I love it. And I love that cup, man. It's like, I've been using it because Jesus saves, bro. Amen. Right? And I love it. And guess what? I've been using it. And then all of a sudden, my wife loves it too because she's been using it. And then she said, you know that, that cup you've got, that Jesus saves cup has a little fracture in it. You can, I'm like, really? She goes, yeah, I don't know how you did it. I didn't say anything back. I'm like, you've been using it too. <laughs> you know? But I said, hmm, okay. I went and looked at it. You could barely see it. And she's like, I don't know if you can use it anymore because likes germs or whatever. I thought, okay, it'll find its way to my desk then and become a place for pens. So I've got a couple, you know, coffee cups like that. And she has like 25, I don't drink coffee. I'll use it for like iced tea. I actually use it for kefir, blueberries or blackberries, you know, just a little bit each, each day almost, you know, healthy. And uh, sometimes for something to drink. And I was like, man, I need to find that cup again, you know, because I like that. And I typed in, I, I Googled, you know, Jesus saves bro coffee mug. And I went to like Amazon, or you know, uh, I think it was like Amazon. And it's like, I don't, didn't realize how many Jesus Saves Bro cups there are. They're all over the place. I'm like, how am I going to find this one? I couldn't find it on Amazon though. I just, then I went back to Google and I just looked at general search on Google and I found it. And it was at Hobby Lobby. So I thought, oh, praise God, I go to Hobby Lobby and get it. Went to Hobby Lobby. They couldn't find it. One lady goes and gets another lady. Then that lady goes and gets another lady. Before I know it, I've got three ladies there. And they're like, yeah, we're looking for Jesus saves, bro. I go, yeah, because he died for our sins. I just threw that in there, you know. And, uh, and then they couldn't find it. And they said, you have to order it online, which is no big deal. I'll do that, you know. And as I'm leaving, I said, oh, one more thing. They all looked. I go, Jesus saves, bro. <laughs> and then I left, and they all smiled. So you try to get your shots in, you know, whatever way you can, right? But we're, we should be praying for people because these are the people for whom Christ died. He died for the entire world. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever in the world believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son, Jesus goes on to say, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And how do I know that the world there really means the whole world and not just a special group of elite elect? 
How do I know that? It's very, very clear. Because he goes on to say that this world rejected him though. They rejected his love. That they loved darkness more than light. They hated the light and refused to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. That's the world he died for. So, and uh, Mounts, he's a really great Greek Reformed scholar. Uh, and he's Reformed, so I don't agree with all his theology. But you know what? In John 3.16, he says, <laughs> there's no way around it. The Greek means that he loved the world. And he's, and he's talking about the non-believing, non-elect world. He loves everybody. And that's what Paul wants to get through our heads here, is we're supposed to pray for everyone because we always can get this me, myself, mine, my group, my people, this tribal mentality where we forget that he loves everyone. Red, brown, yellow, black, or white. We're supposed to pray for everyone. Amen? Uh, Republican, Democrat, <laughs> independent, Jews, Gentiles, straight people, queer people, whoever. Supposed to pray for everybody, amen? Jesus loves everyone. He died for everyone. He hates what people are doing, but he shed his blood for them. And how dare we not pray for them when he died for them. So when we look at this verse, you guys, and we look at, we look at uh, entreaties, entreaties. Uh, that's intercessions, crying out to God, you know, interceding for people with just a heartfelt conviction. God, please have mercy on them, you know. And then he says, and prayers. That's more Greek words, more of a general word uh, for prayers. Uh, petitions. That means requests. It could also be translated uh, intercessions as well. Petitions, requests. That we just ask God for things, amen? And so we've got these general prayers. We have these requests. We have these, these entreaties. We have these intercessions where we're crying out to God. Heartfelt prayers. There's a variety here. But notice he says, the, vast, the last thing he says is what? And what? Thanksgivings, amen? Thanksgivings. And I love that Paul does that. Because Paul does that in Colossians. He mentions prayers with thanksgiving. Remember Philippians chapter four? Remember he says, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer, right? Right, he mentions two different types of prayer there. Right, your request and being known to God and with what? Thanksgiving, amen. And the peace of God will guard your heart in Christ Jesus, amen. And that's not a, a trivial thing. I want to encourage you in this because guess what? Can you imagine you read Paul saying pray uh, for all these different people, right? And then you're thinking about the first century church you're living in that century. And maybe you had a specifically hard time with Alexander. Or you had a specifically high, hard time with the false teacher Hymenaeus. Maybe he led a loved one of yours, part of your family, away from the Lord. Hard to pray for him, Right? Or somebody else you're struggling, you're like, and he's going to mention kings and those in authority. Nero? Maybe you had a Christian friend or a family member that was put to death by Nero through persecution. So it's like hard to pray. And you might be praying for them, but, like, but then he doesn't want you to forget when you're praying to have thanksgiving. To have thanksgiving. Because there's always so much to be thankful for. And you know what? Satan wants to steal your joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, amen? And when we have the joy of the Lord and we're focused on how good God is and how much he's blessed us, amen, how he's given us eternal life, how he gave his son for us, how he, gave us, how he gives us the Holy Spirit, how he's preparing a place for us, and we forget all that, 
and we just think about, woe is me, I'm going through so much right now. And we forget the big picture, we can forget to be thankful. So it's important when we're praying to have hearts of thanksgiving. In fact, Jesus said, when you pray, right, when you're praying according to God's will, uh, you should believe that you've accepted the answer. If it's God's will, right? Of course, if it's will, Lord, I, I pray, Father, in, your, in, in Jesus' name, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, minister to my friends, speak to them by your Holy Spirit. Guess what? That's his will. You pray that. Then you can give thanks. Thank you, Lord. Because Jesus said you give thanks when you pray. But, but, but what, if I, what if I pray something that's outside of God's will? Well, that's why I always try to say, thy will be done. Then I'm thankful because guess what? When I'm praying thy will be done, I'm not praying anything outside of his will. He says, Lord, cancel whatever I prayed that didn't match your will. And thankfully, because I'm praying your will, that means I know uh, my prayer will be heard. And it's just important to, be, to put thanksgiving in your prayers. So how many of you pray, but you just don't give thanks? And we don't, we don't give thanks. And you don't mag I like thanksgiving because I like the verses in the Psalms and so forth that talk about magnifying the Lord. You ever get a magnifying glass? I remember as a little kid, the first time I saw a magnifying glass and things would just blow up. I'd be, wow. Little boys are bad though, right? They, 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 magnifying glass and insects do not go together, okay? But you have a magnifying glass that blow up. Well, we're supposed to magnify the Lord. And when you give thanks in your prayers, first of all, when you're praying, you're magnifying the Lord. You're seeking him and his will. And you're able to see him better. But when you give thanks, all of a sudden you start to appreciate what he's done in your life. And I'm telling you right now, this is such an underrated aspect of prayer, thanksgiving. And so many Christians suffer because they pray miserly, they pray selfishly, and they don't give thanks for how the Lord blesses them and how he blesses others. And therefore, they don't have the joy of the Lord. There's so much to be thankful for. Can you breathe? Do you ever say thank you, Jesus, for there I breathe? Thank you for the food that you put on the table. Thank you for the senses that you gave me. And if you even have one sense to feel or whatever, that's better than zero, amen? But most of us have far more than one. We should be thankful for everything. So Thanksgiving is a huge part of this. Now, let's go to chapter, or verse two, verse two. So in verse 1, he says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings, that means more than just thankful for one or two things, be made on behalf of all men, for everyone, everyone. Verse 2, when he, now he says all men, but who does he put on the list first in verse 2? Now he gets more specific. For who? For kings. What king do you think Paul's audience would be thinking of at this time. Who's the king of the Roman Empire? That might be the only king they're thinking about because he just rules the Roman Empire. Nero. Caesar Nero. Wow. Caesar Nero. That is amazing because Caesar Nero was ruling when Paul wrote 1 Timothy and when he wrote 2 Timothy. And he was one of the most evil Caesar's emperors ever. A Roman emperor, Caesar Nero, you've all heard about him. I mean, this is a man who married another man. Think about the book of Romans, chapter one, about how men left the natural use of the woman 
and committed unnatural sex, men with men, received in their bodies a due penalty of their perversions. And uh, he married another man and he became the bride. Well, then he married another, he married a boy, a young guy named Sporus, S-P-O-R-U-S, in about 66, 67 A.D. And he had reportedly kicked his pregnant wife to death before this, named Papeia, uh, Papeia, and he felt Sporus looked like his wife. So he married this kid, this, this young guy, and he had him castrated and turned him into what he felt was a female, had him all dressed up like an empress. You know, they would call him lady, empress, uh, mistress, and had a, had a public wedding with this guy, Sporus. And after that, he married, he rejected Sporus eventually and married another guy. And then he became the bride. And it was a public wedding and inside, but a lot of his people were there. And they consummated the wedding right there. But he was the bride there. And it's like pretty disgusting stuff, right? And this guy was really, really wicked. In fact, the scriptures talk about in Leviticus 18, this was contrary to the law of Moses, contrary to God's word. 18.22, you know, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination, the Lord says, right? And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, it says that a man is not to wear that which pertains to a woman. Men aren't supposed to dress like women. And women aren't supposed to wear that which pertains to a man. Oh, well, that's the Old Testament. Ah, it's in the New Testament, too. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, pornois, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, those who sleep with other uh, men's wives or other women's husbands, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, arsenokoitai, that means men betters, men that bet other men, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But it's interesting, he doesn't just say homosexuals, but he says the malakoi. Listen to this. First Corinthians 6, he says the malakoi, in the transliteration that would be M-A-L-A-K-O-I in the Greek. He says the malakoi, don't be deceived, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And some translate that soft men or effeminate. But it's distinguished from the homosexual. Many viewed it as the male that would take the female position in the relationship. Just like you have with women, oftentimes one pretends to be the male, even though she's a woman, and another pretends to be the female. You have the same thing in a lot of homosexual uh, gay relationships. But at the same time, Paul says they won't hear the kingdom of God, but then he goes on to say, but such were some of you, right? Right? But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified by the, by the Holy Spirit and, and the authority of the Lord Jesus, right? All these wonderful things. But they were once lost like that. So we have to remember, that's who we were before the church was filled with people that were, in the past, Mal- Malakoi, men betters, thieves, fornicators, adulterers. But such were some of you. So Jesus came to save them. Amen? He didn't come to say, okay, church, they're your enemies. Now, he doesn't want us to be ignorant. Because there's two extremes. There's the extreme like the Westboro Baptist group, a five-point Calvinist group that says God hates gays and pickets funerals and everything else and shouts and says, oh, and they're just rage. And God has, wait a minute. Jesus died for everybody. And you're picketing funerals. 
You're picketing servicemen who gave their lives and you're picketing their funerals? And that gives a black eye to Christianity. That's not true Christianity. Yet the media, they want to show, oh, look at what Christians are like. That's not Christianity. That's an extreme. But the other extreme says, oh, yeah, since Jesus loves the world, he died for the world, everybody's getting into the kingdom of God. Ooh, that's another lie on the other side. Don't be deceived. Because if you're deceived to believe that, you won't be praying for them and their salvation. The folks that are in that list that aren't repentant. You won't be caring for them in prayer. And you'll watch people go to hell without lifting a finger or lifting your voice. And it's interesting. We know what this Greek word malakoi means. You know why? Philo, he was a Jewish uh, philosopher. I'm sorry, he was a Greek philosopher of Alexandria. And the Koine Greek uh, word malakoi, he spoke Koine Greek. And, and you know what he said about this word that Paul uses here? And he was contemporary with Paul. He said, it refers to men, he says, who, quote, became like women in their persons and who, quote, altered the impression of their natural manly appearance into the resemblance of a woman. Isn't that interesting? Clement of Alexandria, a second century church father, uh, he said of this word that it refers to those who became effeminate and wear women's hairstyles and perfume and shave their bodies to become smooth like women. Does that sound familiar, by the way? That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, this is not politically correct to actually read the Bible and explain what it means. But I don't care about being politically correct. I've got to stand before God and give an account. It says teachers will have a stricter judgment. Amen? And it says uh, to obey your leaders in Hebrews 13, for they shall give an account for your souls. So I'd rather go before the public magistrates in the future and then play this so look, listen to what you said publicly. Yeah, I did. Because I'm a Christian pastor. And you guys come down on the hypocrites. And Christians who are hypocrites. Well, hypocrites are those who don't walk their talk. Who don't faithfully adhere to what God says. And I'll be persecuted, hopefully, if I get persecuted like that. Because of righteousness sake. Because we are faithful to God's word. Amen. Because I'd rather be persecuted here in this temporal life and, than be persecuted by God who says, depart from me. You were not faithful in preaching my word and you compromised because you would be, wanted to please men rather than me. We serve an audience of one, amen? We have to hold to God's truth. And we have to recognize the dark state the world is in because we won't be motivated to pray for them if we don't recognize that they're lost. A.B. Simpson, he was the founder of the Missionary Alliance Christian denomination. Uh, Tozer, A.W. Uh, Tozer, became the leader of that denomination for some time. He made a lot of really, said a lot of wonderful things. Unfortunately, he dropped some of names of some of the Catholic mystics and got off a little bit in that area, which is a bummer. Uh, but he made a lot of great statements too in Missionary Alliance. A lot of them are sound folks that have been involved in missions and won tens of thousands of people to Christ. But you know, their founder, A.B. Simpson, used to wake up in the morning and he would get on his knees and he'd clutch a globe of the world and weep and cry before God and pray for the lost world. And I love that heart. That's the heart we ought to have is praying for the lost world, recognizing it's not just this little bubble of people we know in our own situations that we ought to be praying for. As a Christian, you ought to be expanding your prayer horizons, amen, and recognize the need for the world. And that means even praying for wicked people 
like Caesar Nero. And it's interesting because Tacitus, you've heard me mention Tacitus through the years. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And Tacitus is one of the most quoted Roman historians from the first and early part of the second century because he was contemporaneous with the apostles and the early fathers. And, and he wrote about Nero, even though he's a Roman historian, he wrote how he polluted himself by every lawful or lawless indulgence. Okay? Uh, and others, uh, like Cassius Dio, who describes Nero as, as, you know, going incognito, would dress up, right? And he'd go with his bodyguards or whatever into the night. And he would go and he'd take, he'd insult women. He practiced lewdness on boys, he wrote. And beating, it's another historian, beating, wounding, and murdering others. Wow. And Sertonius, he states that Nero... Uh, would go through the roster of vices and invented his own perversions and invented public games that he hosted in which he put on the animal skins of Christians, quote, and assail with violence the private parts of both of men and of women while they were bound to stakes. This is an incredibly depraved and wicked person. And in the fires of Rome in 64, about 64 A.D., uh, at the Circus, Circus Maximus in Rome, uh, they, you know, all kinds of Christians were put to death. You know, the fires of Rome burned for like six days and he blamed it, according to Tacitus, on the Christians because they weren't worshiping the pagan gods. The Christians were called atheists because they refused to believe in the pagan gods and worship them. And uh, Tacitus writes, quote, therefore the squelch, to squelch the rumor that he started that fire, he created scapegoats and subjected them to the most refined tortures, uh, those whom the common people called Christians hated for their abominable crimes. So he blamed on the Christians because Christianity was spreading and people hated the Christians because Christians went against the flow. They went against the mainstream. They were against the utter queerness of Nero. They were against the sexual perversion of the Roman Empire and they didn't worship the Roman gods. Therefore, they became an easy scapegoat and they were blamed for the fires of Rome. The writing's on the wall, guys. Christians, I, I just saw a lady that was on uh, Lib TikTok. You ever see that? It was pretty crazy and she's like, she, she goes, you know who's responsible? I can't, she's using all these expletives. I can't believe I'm paying this much money. You know, I saw this on the news, you know. I can't believe I'm paying this hundred bucks for a pill. It's, you know, who's responsible for all the inflation? All, it's all the Christian right. It's because of the religious right that we're going through all this right now. And I'm like, wait a minute, who's running the Senate? Who's running the Congress? Who's the president? And she's blaming it on the Christian right. I'm like, people are out of their mind. I was interviewed today. We've been doing a lot of interviews lately. And when I was interviewed, I think it was, uh, well, I won't say who it was, but it was a, a pretty big radio ministry. And they asked me, the, guy asked me off, the gentleman asked me off the air, he goes, Joe, do you think these progressives are suffering from some kind of like mental illness? You know? And I said, well, it does say, you know, that, and I go, we were once there. So I said, Lord, help me be merciful, but truthful. Like we were once there, but it talks about how God gives people over to a depraved mind. Because he was talking about how you can't talk, you can show them such logic. Science, you know. XX, XY chromosomes, you know. Uh, he didn't go into all that, but he was talking about you just say, show them straight truth. And it's just like, 
they can't see it. And I said, the Bible does talk about giving up, being given over to depraved mind. But it's for these people, and we were them, that Jesus died for. So we have to watch this us against, against them mentality, and we have to pray for them. And I'll tell you what, it, you know what? I try not to watch too much news from secular people, even very conservative people who don't know Jesus, who don't talk about the answer being in Christ. Sometimes I find myself, I'm watching too much of it. I'm starting to get a little upset, right? I got to pray. Because I don't, these guys, a lot of these guys, they might have some really good points, but if they don't know Jesus, you can get the same anger that they have. If you hang out with an angry person, the Bible says you become angry like him. And just today, I was like, God, this, well, praise the Lord, I'm glad I'm on this passage right now. Because the, the mayor in Chicago, where they're having all these bloody killings every week, it's through the roof, over and over and over again. Little kids getting killed, crossfire from gangs. And the Lightfoot that just made a new law, you know, signed a new bill or whatever, that police officers can no longer chase down criminals by, on foot. They just have to let them go. What kind of law is that? And then Gascon. RDA, remember the DA in Frisco, just up above us, up north, Northern California, just recalled? Well, we got a DA here, and you know, he tried to whitewash what happened by not mentioning, I only hear it anyway, I only heard part of the speech, so maybe he did mention it, but he talks about how, you know, because he's under fire right now, because he's been under fire over and over again. A lot of these guys are, are funded, and their campaigns to become DAs around the country are funded by George Soros, who is very anti-Christ, Anti the state of Israel, helped the Nazis turn in his own fellow Jews to the Nazis, and is spending a ton of money from overseas getting DAs that just slap people's hands so crime will run amok. And Gascon has been under fire over and over again, but he's, and he just, he let a guy out not too long ago uh, who had been in and out of federal prison. And then he was caught with drugs and illegal firearms and ammunition and everything. And he didn't even give any jail time after he'd been out of prison two or three times. Federal prison. A convicted, repeated convicted felon. And he just got probation. And then just the other day, it was yesterday, the day before, he gunned down two police officers and killed them both. Yeah, that's, that's the world we live in. So do I have a hard time praying for Gascon? Yeah. But I need to. God commands me to. And I need to realize Jesus died for him. And I need to realize the bigger picture that the Lord is giving here. And I need to realize that perhaps one of the reasons that so much crime and so much wickedness prevails, and it'll be harder and harder to be a witness, is probably because of a lack to a degree of Joe Schimmel's prayers for these leaders and the prayers of my brothers and sisters. I got to say, Lord, I may be part responsible for this because I'm not praying for my leaders enough. I'm just speaking the convictions I've been receiving from the Lord about my need to pray for these guys more. And perhaps you have a similar need. Because when I look at Gascon, I'm disgusted because I followed what he's done over and over again. And I look at him, I'm like, that's wicked. But then I have to say, Lord, save that man because he is going to a really hot part of hell right now. And he may not turn, but I want to obey you and pray for him. Because by the grace of God go I, and we could be in the same boat. So it's, it blows me away because, uh, you know, it really blows me away because here 
when you look at him saying, pray for kings, right? And then you think, Caesar Nero. And he says, pray for all men. And then the first thing he says, kings. And you're like, Caesar Nero. How can I pray for Caesar Nero? Caesar Nero is so wicked. And, you know, he hadn't even done a lot of the stuff that I just talked about. But he did a lot of wicked stuff by that time, right? And I'm like, how can I pray for him? He's the wickedest guy in the world. Then I'd stop. Because I just read something else that Paul stated in chapter 1, right? A few, just seconds before I read this, if I'm reading through 1 Timothy, maybe 30 seconds, 20 seconds earlier, that Paul called himself what? The chief of sinners. Then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait, Nero's not the chief of sinners. He's wicked, but wow, Paul is. And Paul said, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of which I am chief. Wow. So, wow, Jesus came to save Paul, and he went on to say that he saved me to show others that they too, anybody who would come to him could be saved. That would mean even Nero. That's how awesome the gospel is. Now, we love to know how awesome the gospel is when we're thinking of our own sin, amen? Praise God, Jesus, you did it all. You died for all my sins. You were so good. Oh, wait, you died for them too? Be careful. Don't be begrudging of God's grace and think it's just for you. He died for Paul. Thank God he died for Paul, amen? I love that. He took Paul, the chief of all sinners, and he used him to write about half the New Testament. Blows me away. How awesome the Lord is. Now, it's interesting because he uses this word all. Look at this word, how many times he uses the word all. Verse one of chapter two. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of who? All men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may be lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires who? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Wow. Wow. Now it's interesting. When I'm praying for the lost, that not only allows God to use my prayers, which he sovereignly works into his divine will in how he manages the universe. It's pretty heavy when you think about that, that your prayers actually matter regarding people's salvation and lack thereof. It's really fascinating. But notice what else it helps out. Look at verse two again, the second part. For kings, he says, right? Because he came to save sinners of which Paul was chief and all who are in authority. So that's not just kings. That's not just presidents, Biden, prime ministers, Putin, leaders. Should be praying for them too. Pray for Putin. Pray for his salvation. Well, Putin, guess what? That guy needs to get saved. Can you imagine if he actually got saved? Could actually, can, you if he, can you imagine if he wasn't hiding behind the Eastern or the Russian Orthodox Church claiming that he's a man of God? And he actually fell down before Jesus and was convicted and realized I'm just butchering people. What am I doing? And he got right with God. Pray for him. Well, how that's going to actually work? Well, how many people prayed for the Apostle Paul? And somebody said, that's ridiculous. He's killing Christians. Why are you even wasting your breath on him? He got saved, wrote half the New Testament. Amen. So yeah, sometimes the prayer gets answered with salvation. But he says, and all who are authority, so, now it's interesting, look at the last part of verse two, so that we might lead what? A tranquil, that's a peaceful, and a what? 
quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Wow. So you praying for your leaders, right? And that means senators, congressmen, local leaders, mayors, Governor Newsom. I know, some of it's hard to do. But the more you do it, the easier it gets, by the way. Okay? You pray for them. Why? So you can lead a tranquil, a peaceful life. How many want to have a peaceful life? Well, that may not be as impacting to you as it was to them in the first century when Nero was ruler. And it doesn't mean you won't have any tribulation, any conflict. Did Paul have tribulation conflict? Yeah. But overall, he was able to what? Share the gospel. Amen? So you might have a tranquil and quiet life in all what? Godliness and dignity. Now I know when we pray for others, it helps us become more godly. Because you never become more like the Lord than when you're praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life. When you look to him in faith and you, and you, you pray according to his word, he transforms you. And then you're praying for the lost and leaders. And since God uses our prayers, a climate where the gospel can spread is fostered to where you have peace because there's the people of God are praying and God can bring forth a climate of peace. And I don't think he would say this in his word if our prayers didn't matter and our prayers didn't help bring that about because he's in his sovereignty, uses the prayers of men. And he says, by doing that, you can have a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. But I think I'm able to live a quieter life in all godliness and dignity. And there's times of great persecution that they come. But I think he's talking about overall, right? Because guess what? You're praying for these leaders and many of these leaders will at least fear God to some degree than they would, than they would not have feared God having you not prayed. Since you pray, there's an effect. Sometimes they get saved. Sometimes the leaders get saved, right? Sometimes they bow down before the Lord. Sometimes they cry out to him and seek him. Tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So I pray for them and then God can create an atmosphere because we're praying for these lost leaders where there's peace to share the gospel and it also makes us more godly because we become more Christ-like because we're praying and you're never more like the Lord than when you're loving your enemies. Amen? Because Jesus said, what better are you than the pagans? If you just love your own families, if you just love your own, because even the pagans love their own families. But he said, love your, love your enemies because God causes sun, right, to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and you'll be like the most high God. That's true agape, the way the New Testament harnesses that word when it speaks of God's love, an alien love that the world doesn't know. And when you're praying for your enemies, that's when you become so Christ-like. And when you're loving them, you become more and more godly. So as you're praying for them, that, that is a word that really just jumped out at me when I was meditating on this text. Wow, we become more godly, not just, not just have a, 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 a more peace to share the gospel, but we become more godly and we become more, we're more dignified because we're shining the light because even the world will take notice that we have integrity, that we're standing by our convictions, that we care for the wicked, which is an alien kind of love. And it's because of the love of God in Christians in the early church that the gospel spread like wildfire. It's amazing when you think about it. By the way, I don't fully agree, and I've quoted Tertullian before, 
One of the church fathers, I've quoted Tertullian several times, but I've quoted him in the past at times where he talks about, you know, the blood of the saints, right? The martyrs, the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs, those who gave their lives is the seed of the church. So because, and there's truth to what he says there. And I'll still quote that. Because especially when you look at the apostolic church and the early church fathers and the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection, these, their blood was flowing, man, as the early Christians were being put to death. And a lot of these guys had seen the resurrected Christ and it caused the gospel to spread. But sometimes we use that truth and there's truth to it. And we say, ah, oh, pray for persecution. And we talk about how, and I've said it, you know, uh, China and other Christians and, and Muslim nations, they pray that the American church would get persecuted. So there would be true revival. So they'd wake up and, and the gospel would spread more. But I think, hmm, that's interesting though, in light of this passage. This says pray for the leaders so that you may have what? Peace, right? So the gospel spreads. That's what he goes on to talk about. Isn't that interesting? So to me, they're not mutually exclusive declarations. There is truth that when the gospel spreads, that when Christians are persecuted for Christ, they stand up that more people are drawn to Christ. But it's not a universal truth that the gospel always spreads in such situations, i.e. look at some of the Muslim nations like Saudi Arabia, where it's just mass persecution and you can't even preach the gospel and the gospel isn't spreading so well. See what I'm saying? So that's why this, this, these prayers are important and that we hold these truths in a, a true tension where you can see the truth of these declarations, but they, they're not mutually exclusive statements. I should say, they're not statements that cancel each other out. There's truth. Yeah, when people get martyred and they're persecuted, people come to Christ. But, we don't say, but what if everybody was martyred for Christ tomorrow? Where would our witness be? Amen? So you also want peace and you also want to be able to, to share the gospel. Amen? This is very, very important. In fact, Armand just walked in. Hi, Armand. How you doing, bro? Didn't mean to signal you out, but can you stand and bow? No, I'm just kidding. We love Armand. He's awesome. But... He comes from what's sometimes called the first, or often called the first Christian nation, where the leader of the nation bowed down to Jesus Christ and said, I want to follow Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And they went through radical persecution. Perhaps two million or more people killed by the Turks and through the Ottoman Empire. And, and, and you know, horror, horrifying. I mean, at the end of even the Ottoman Empire, right? In the alliance with uh, the Nazis and so forth and that the Turks had and so forth, and they had times of peace where the gospel spread, and they had times of persecution. And through that persecution, a lot of Ar Armenians, not Armenians, <laughs> but Armenians, you know, spread the gospel uh, to different parts where they were driven as well, and they stood out. So you just pray that God uses you wherever you're at. Look at verse three. We've got about 10 minutes left. Look at verse three. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. What's good and acceptable? Everything he's just said. That we should need to be prayer warriors, man, praying for everybody. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Why is this good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior? Well, look at the very next verse. Who desires what? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at the very end of verse one. You're supposed to pray for everyone in prayers, thanksgiving, all these things be made on behalf of who? All men, why? Verse four, who? 
desires all men to be saved. And many, you know, Greek commenta- or commentators will point out that the who there could be there or because. You could translate that word because. And I could give you instances in the Greek where the same Greek word is translated because. And that's the, that's the sense there. Because God desires, why are you praying for all men? Why are you praying for everyone? Because he desires, verse 4, that all, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because in verse 15... Paul said earlier, just a few verses before he says these verses, that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Because in 1 Timothy 4.10, and you can go there, we read this, as he'll say later, verse 9 is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And by the way, everything I'm reading to you now has a statement like that. It's a, tr- it's a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. That God came, came to, that Christ came to the world to save sinners of which I'm chief, right? And then here, you know, it's a trustworthy saying. Why? Verse ten, verse nine, to be full acceptance. Because verse ten, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of who believers. He's the Savior of who all men, but especially of who believers. How is he the savior of all men? Well, he wills that all will be saved come to knowledge of truth, verse 4, chapter 2. But verse 6 says he what? He gave himself a ransom for who? All. So he paid, he provided salvation for everyone through his death. But while his death is sufficient for all, it's only efficient for those who put their trust in Jesus. That's why these verses don't teach any idea of universal salvation. There's universal provision, the universal will of God's love, and the universal provision of his son but God's given you free moral agency. He's given you libertarian free will, whereby you can accept or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. His, his will, his antecedent will is, you know, get saved, come to Jesus. But his consequent will is if you reject Jesus, he's sovereign, okay, now you're gonna pay your own just desserts because you rejected my primary will for your life. But he also has a permissive will, whereby he allows you to reject him. Amen? So we see these radical truths here, and it's quite interesting when you look at this because most, many, I shouldn't say most, I'm probably up to like nine or ten commentaries now on on, on Timothy, or more sometimes, because I like to see what other people are saying. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of the commentators, you know, whether it's I. Howard Marshall, Arminian, or Mounts, Reformed, both those guys and others will point out, and it's interesting, they all, a lot of these guys point out that we don't have commentary in the first century right when this was written to know exactly the situation that Paul faced, but we know from the self-witness of Paul's letter to Timothy that there's some form of elitism whereby certain people are teaching that salvation is only for an elect group, only for some elite group. Now, when you look at uh, who the culprits are, we can't know for sure. We have some ideas because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, before we got here, and now keep my Paul's emphasizing, pray for all men, why? Kings, everybody, why? Because God wills that all be saved, amen? Because Christ gave himself for all, he's a ransom for all, all men, amen? All people. Why is he emphasizing the all, 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 all? And that's why a lot of commentators, and I agree with them, I think there's no doubt about it, that Paul is coming against the idea 
that Jesus and the gospel is only for some elect or small group of people. And now who are the culprits? I reiterated what I said last night. I said it again because I want you not to miss this point because it's powerful if you really want to appreciate the verses that we're studying right now. Some believe it's Jews because you know in verse 10 and following, 9, 10, 11 in 1 Timothy 1, remember the Jews who were misusing the law? And they thought that the law is for us, that we're under the law of Moses. So many commentators think it's the Jews teaching that salvation is only for the Jews. Hence why Paul goes on right after verse 6, look at chapter 2, verse 6, right after verse 6 to say that he wills that all will be saved in verse 4. He gave himself a ransom for all, verse 6. And then in verse 7, Paul says what? For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the what? Gentiles in faith and truth. You see that? Salvation is also for the Gentiles. So some view it as the Jews were teaching this exclusive view of the gospel and that you had to keep the law of Moses and salvation was just for the Jews. And didn't Peter believe that for a little while? Even the book of Acts, even after Jesus told him to go into all the world and God had to bring unclean food before him three different times and say, kill and eat because he was showing him that I also died for the Gentiles. Amen? That's one viewpoint. Another viewpoint is that uh, he's coming against Gnostics. Because if you look at some of the teaching, and many commentators agree, top scholars and commentators, that there's Gnostics that Paul's concerned about. Hence the reason he ends this very epistle, 1 Timothy, about watch out for that which is falsely called Gnosis, which, by the way, becomes the subtitle for Irenaeus' work uh, against heresies, or that which is falsely called Gnosis, when he comes against the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that there was more than one mediator to God. Hence Paul's words in verse 5, right? Sandwiched in between, he was that all would be saved. And he gave himself a ransom for all. Is there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he's emphasizing Jesus is the only way. And, that salva- and the Gnostics taught that salvation was only for an elect group of people. Those who were given special gnosis. And God didn't really love everybody and want everybody to be saved. So some believe that he's also, or he's combating the Gnostics. Others, I'm assuming, I haven't come across commentaries like this, but if I was writing a commentary on this, and since I'm teaching, I'm kind of doing a commentary on it, I would say it's very possible, too, that there was a, a, a group of zealous Jews that were mystical, that had Gnostic-type tendencies, kind of like what you see when Paul addresses the church at Colossae, who held a very exclusive view of salvation. Very possible. We can't be sure who this exact group was that he's pinpointing here, but we don't really need to. Why? We just need to say, draw a line from there to here. Is anybody today teaching that Jesus only died for a few? Yeah. Determinists. A lot of people in the reform camp. In fact, they'll say, some people say, a lot of teachers today, popular teachers, well, Jesus never even prayed for all the lost. He only interceded, only prayed for the church. And, and we got to watch that highfalutin attitude. And some in the same camp of our, in our, our reformed brethren, we love them. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we disagree just like we would disagree with Peter when he thought salvation was only for the Jews. It wasn't going to go to the Gentiles. We love you, Peter, but guess what? There's so much more to God's grace, amen? And Jesus died for all. He wills that all would be saved, amen? And that needs to be preached for the pulpits because you know what? When I see Paul say, it's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ came to the world to save sinners, of which I'm the worst one. 
And then I see him say in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 4, right after he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. And then I see a little later, he says, this is a trustworthy statement, serving full acceptance, that he is the Savior of the whole world, especially of those who believe. Why does he use this statement, that this is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, and repeat a version of that over and over again, when he emphasizes the universal salvific will of God, saving even the worst of sinners and giving himself for all. Why does he do that over and over again? Because I believe he knew that that was not only a problem then, but it would be a problem today that people would wonder if God really loved them, if Jesus really died for them. Or he'd be concerned of others that would think, no, Jesus, of course he died for my group. Of course he loves me, but man, not everybody. In fact, look at the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Jesus says, I don't pray for the world. I just pray for my disciples. And they'll point to that. Oh, let's look at that. Go to John 17. John 17, look at verse nine. Jesus says, I ask, and he's praying to the Father on their behalf. Those are the ones that the Father gave him. I do not ask on behalf of who? Y'all yet, John 17, nine? I do not ask on behalf of who? The world. But to those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Well, of course he's not asking for the praying for the world at this point. Why? Because he's praying specifically for people who have accepted him and have embraced him. Does that mean he doesn't want the gospel to go to the world? That he doesn't want them to be saved? That he wants us to pray for everybody, but he won't pray for everybody? No, because look what he goes on to say. Look at verse 17. He goes on to pray for them, for the lost world. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's talking about his disciples. As you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask, look at this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Now he expands his prayer. But for those who believe in me through their word, other believers in the future. That's you and me prayed for right here. But not only that, look at verse 21, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that what? So that the world may believe that you sent me. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for his future disciples. He's praying that we'll be one in Christ and be sanctified by his word and united in his truth so that the world will see our love and by seeing our love that they'll see Jesus that they'll come to saving faith in him. He goes on to say that again, that the world may know. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says Jesus, talking about his death for the world and so forth, made intercession for the transgressors. Who's the transgressors, the lost world? On the cross, in Luke chapter 22, I think around verse 34, Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. These are the ones who are crucifying and spitting upon him, for they know not what they do. Of course he prays for the lost world, amen? In John 11, he prays in such a way, and it says he prayed in a certain way that the non-believing Greeks would come to Christ, that were listening to him pray. What's my point? That our, our God who became a man is not asking us to do something he himself did not do. And he set the example, amen? We pray special prayers for our brothers and sisters, but we also pray for the lost, Everyone, kings and all those who are authority even, wicked people. Why? Five quick points to end. 
Number one, because God wills that they all be saved, verse four of chapter two. Number two, so that they know the one true God, chapter two, verse five. Number three, so that they can know the one true mediator that mediates between us and the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, because Jesus died to give himself a ransom for all. The word ransom there in the Greek speaks of pain for someone to be set free from prison. We were in the prison of Satan and sin and death and subject to God's wrath. Number five, because Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. That's in the verse seven that we looked at. That's five reasons we're supposed to be praying for everyone. So, man, you guys, praying is obeying. Amen? Amen. Disobeying or, or refusing to pray, not praying, is disobeying. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. We need to be people of prayer. Amen? So let's take just a few minutes out and just gather. Let's obey the scripture together, that we're praying fellowship. So get together with at least three people, maybe four, and just say some prayers for our leaders and for everyone, amen? Because God wills that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, amen? Just get next to two or three people. Let's have groups of three or four, and let's pray as we close out this evening. Oh, well, wait a minute, Joe, I'm here to learn the word, not actually obey it. No, come on. We're here to follow his word too, amen? Let's get in groups. I love you guys. Press on to Jesus. Turn to him if you don't know him. He died for you. He rose again. Repent and have faith in him and you'll have eternal life.